Alert Medic 1 respond. Box area 19 dash. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Welcome to the Alert Medic One podcast. My name is uh, Mustafa Sadiq. I got Ken and Dr. Rittberg here with me. Hey, everybody. Today we're going to be talking about, uh, I'm sure everyone has seen this article and has talked about it or heard someone talk about it. It's uh, titled Pulmonary Complications of Opiate Overdose Treated with Naloxone. Uh, what journal is it in? Annals uh, of Emergency Medicine. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's by Dr. Uh, Farkas et al. Uh, yeah, everybody. Comes um, from uh, Pittsburgh, UPMC, powerhouse of uh, EMS in general, EMS research, EMS fellowship, EMS system. Yeah, yeah, I've heard only good things. Didn't one of our, yeah. One of my previous medical directors left to go up there, yeah, yep. Um, He's one of the banana phone guys. Our loss, yep, banana phone guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're listening to this, Doc, hi. If you're listening to this, that means we're doing something right. uh, (laughs) Because I don't think anyone's And we'd love to have you on. You know who you are if you're hearing this right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so I'm just going to read through the first little box of their study objective and like their methods and results and stuff. And then, Dr. Wittberg, if you can comment on how to actually interpret it. Sure. How does that sound? So, and I'm just reading from the paper. Um, so their study objective was to, uh, the, it, I'll read it. Uh, we aim to determine whether administration of higher doses of naloxone for the treatment of opiate overdose is associated with increased pulmonary complications. I'm not going to read the whole method section, but basically it was a retrospective obs- observational cross-sectional study uh, about 1,800 patients. Um, and then their results were, so uh, patients receiving out-of-hospital naloxone in doses exceeding 4.4 milligrams were 62% more likely to have a pulmonary complication after opiate overdose. Um, and then their conclusion, higher doses of naloxone in, in the out-of-hospital treatment of opiate overdoses are associated with a higher rate of pulmonary complications. Furthermore, prospective study is needed to determine the, ca- the causality of this, this relationship. Now, that's shocking because I was always taught naloxone is a harmless drug. Yes. But that's not true, is it, Dr. Wittberg? Absolutely not. In fact, is there any such thing as a harmless drug? Yeah, I always, when I talk to my patients, I always talk to them about how drugs are part poison. You know, so yeah. many medications have adverse side effects. I think for way too long, we've just considered naloxone as the antidote. We wake people up mm-hmm. and we go on with our lives and there's mm-hmm. much more to it. Um, but so let's just talk about this. this. This study was a retrospective observational study. So quite simply, what does that mean? Retrospective means that uh, it was done by chart review after the fact. So the events that were being studied had already occurred. Um, observational is the opposite of controlled, meaning they were reviewing charts. They were looking for observations, um, uh, relationships between things. A retrospective observational study like this uh, is really at the opposite end of the spectrum of what is usually considered the most powerful study in medicine or pre-hospital medicine, which is a randomized control trial. So randomization means that you know we are performing an intervention that we're studying and maybe on, uh, we pull an envelope and it tells us, do we perform intervention A or B? And we have no idea until we're about to perform the intervention or even as we're performing the intervention, what we're doing. 
in this case, everything was open. Everybody knew what they were doing. Uh, the data was analyzed retrospectively, not prospectively. Uh, observational in that there was no control over any of the variables. Um, versus again, the, the golden, the golden study in in medicine that carries kind of the highest uh, weight power is a randomized control trial, which is done with a randomization. So we don't know who's getting an intervention versus not. It's done prospectively, so in real time, um, and and there's complete, almost complete control over all of the variables. Um, so this is really, as it states, it's it's an observational study uh, of patients that received uh, naloxone for what EMS providers suspected was an opioid intoxication. So, um, uh, so definitely a, a shortcoming, right? I mean, but I think uh, it should be definitely noted that how, you know, and please comment on this doc because you know a lot more of this than I do, but like how medical research works is it's usually stepwise, right? That's why they say at the end of it that we should probably do a prospective study. Right. If you actually go, if you pull up this paper and you actually go to, so, so really, you know, good papers, disclose their limitations. Mm -hmm. And one of the first disclosures in this paper under their limitation sections is they say, you know, because the study was a retrospective study, it constrains the ability to make conclusions in regard to the causality of the relationship between naloxone dosage and pulmonary complications. Mm -hmm. um, so we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, we usually, yeah. usually when we, when you analyze a paper, uh, a couple of key things to look at is, you know, what is the source? Where is it coming from? It's coming from Annals of Emergency Medicine. This is a legit peer-reviewed journal, okay? So it's important to understand uh, peer-reviewed versus non-peer-reviewed. So peer-reviewed journal, usually the evidence and, and data uh, presented in peer-reviewed journals uh, is, is much higher than your standard trade magazines like... Um, uh, give me an example gems. of a, a gems. gems. Okay, yeah. so mo most of the stuff gems. Antivax.com. Antivax.com. I don't know if that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, so this, you know, look at where the paper comes from. It's a peer-reviewed journal. Number yeah. two is look at the source. You know, who wrote the paper? This was written by the group at UPMC. This is a highly respected uh, group of EMS uh, clinicians. Okay, so right there, that that adds to kind of uh, the weight of the paper. Um, and then you kind of can delve into other other things that look at kind of. Um, the power of the study, how, how, how powerful is the data being presented here? And one of the, um, the key things that contributes to a power of a study is how many patients were enrolled. So in this case, uh, there were, I believe, over 1,800 patients enrolled. Uh, and then you want to delve into the paper and look at how many patients were excluded and make sure that a ton of patients weren't excluded. And if patients were excluded, were they excluded for the right reason or were they excluded to make the results look better? And if you actually look at this paper, what they did was uh, they enrolled over 1,800 patients. Um, if you look at their inclusion criteria, uh, they, they enrolled patients um, through a retrospective chart review, looking at charts between 2013 and 2016, just from the city of Pittsburgh. Uh, they, they did a search of EMS records for patients that were transported to um, uh, one of three large EDs within the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Health System. Um, and they have a table in the paper that looks at who they excluded. And these were p patients that, again, were suspected of having uh, opioid intoxication. 
that received Narcan, the search terms uh, in their equivalent of their EMS chart. They use the, the search terms, I believe, naloxone or Narcan to identify the patients. And if you look at, um, uh, there's a figure late in the paper that shows that uh, 1,980 charts mm -hmm. were identified. Um, they excluded 79 of those ch uh, patients uh, when hospital records couldn't be found. They excluded another 70 patients when they went back and looked and Narcan wasn't actually even given. Uh, and then they excluded another 375 um, uh, in a, so, so in the analysis, only the 79 plus 70 were excluded. When they went on to do further analyses, they excluded another 375 uh, where the reviewers felt that, that uh, opioid overdose wasn't at play. Um, so so the, the numbers that were analyzed were still 1,831 patients uh, were included in the analysis. Um, so so, Doc, did they uh, did they include or exclude, or did they not specifically mention uh, anybody who had like poly substance abuse if they were speedballing, or is that mentioned at all? I don't remember seeing so, that. So, so it's referenced. Um, they they did a lot of uh, kind of higher level analysis, multi variability, multi variable analyses, logistic logistic regression analyses. Uh, to look at the association between total and initial naloxone dose and the composite outcome of pulmonary complications. Um, in it, they don't specifically talk about whether or not uh, there were, they were accounting for uh, other uh, toxins in the, in the tox screen, um, but they do talk about that throughout the paper as, um, you know, that many of these patients that they analyzed likely had kind of a polysubstance ingestion picture, uh, and that when they weren't, quote, waking up after Narcan initial dosing, mm -hmm. that sometimes additional dosing was given um, when these patients may have very well been under the influence of alcohol. Right. And these unnecessary additional doses were being given, which through their analysis, they showed that these higher doses and repeated doses of Narcan, and in particular intranasal Narcan, uh, increased the risk of composite pulmonary complications, uh, which they defined as pulmonary edema, um, aspiration, pneumonia, aspiration, pneumonitis, ARDS. And then they also looked at just the patients that they felt just had pulmonary edema, which is one of the things that I take issue with this paper is, you know, wor working in an ER and ICU, splitting my time between both uh, as, as my career, it's often very, very difficult to on a chest X-ray and, and even clinically sometimes diagnose between pulmonary edema and a pneumonitis and inflammation of the lung uh, due to aspiration or whatever else. Uh, so, um, they don't, to get back to your question, I, I could not find in this paper specifically where they talked about tox screen results mm. and the results of the, you know, what other uh, substances may have been on board. So I think um, I want to talk a little bit about the physiology, at least from my understanding, and Doc, uh, definitely uh, correct me wherever I'm wrong. So, and we also had a few other papers that we used to just understand the, the you know, the, the proposed mechanism as to why the pulmonary edema occurs. Uh, so this one is naloxone dosage for opiate reversal, current evidence and clinical implications by uh, Rachel Lynn and J.L. Jelinkin. And then also naloxone-induced non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, a case report by G.Y. et al. So, uh, and, and again, this is just my general understanding. I, I skimmed through some of these papers, but basically in the beginning part is the exact thing that I don't understand, so I'll need your help. But uh, so naloxone increases epinephrine, which... Actually, let's go back a step. Yeah. Let's talk about the patient before they get naloxone. Okay, yes. Okay, okay. cool. Yeah, yeah, So one of the things that this paper cites, and uh, I guess some of the papers that we'll get out to our audience, talks about 
is a forceful inhalation or attempted inhalation or inspiration against a closed glottis. So, you know, you can think about the kind of more, I guess, mundane example of snoring, okay? Um, but imagine that you have a, um, uh, m my sister, when she was younger, choked on a, a gobstopper. So imagine, you know, gobstopper in her airway. She has a completely obstructed glottis, and she is forcefully, forcefully trying to inspire. So uh, kind of sucking in. So that is often the case in people that are getting, you know, heading towards apnea after opioid intoxication or even as they're being woken up. So before you get Narcan, you develop a kind of obstructed airway, a snoring respiratory effort, plus or minus complete you know, glottic obstruction. When you inhale forcefully against a closed glottis, it's known as the Mueller maneuver. And that is very, very tightly associated with um, the incidence of, of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So, so there's one of the big things I think we need our audience to understand is there's two buckets of, of pulmonary edema. There's cardiogenic pulmonary edema, which is typically caused by heart failure, and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, which is caused by other. It can be caused by inhaling against the closed glottis, like we're talking about right now. It can be caused by other inflammatory diseases that cause pulmonary capillary leak in the lung and formation of pulmonary edema, uh, severe pancreatitis. Uh, the, li the list is huge. Um, so. Inhaling against the closed glottis before the administration of Narcan during the course of an opioid overdose in and of itself can cause non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And in fact, that's, you know, we even see increased operative risk in people with obstructive sleep apnea, snorers, you know, for this, for this very reason. Um, so that's the first thing. Yeah, no, yeah. The, the no. Narcan's given. Yeah, yeah, And, you know, there's a, we've all seen this. There's a whole bunch of things that can happen. Let's just go to the most extreme. You just give them a super high dose. You plunge them into fulminant withdrawal. And then what do they often do? They start vomiting. And they're kind of in that phase of coming into awareness. They may not be fully aware. They may not be fully protecting their airway. And they aspirate. So I think that's the easiest thing to understand. The less easier kind of pathophysiologic thing to understand, and it's described very nicely in this paper and some of the other papers that we pulled, is that as you start to give the Narcan, you actually make the brain more aware of, holy crap, I'm hypoxic and I'm probably also hypercarbic. And with that, a couple things happen. You get this huge catecholamine surge that in and of itself can cause pulmonary capillary leak and formation of pulmonary edema. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you can also get what's called hypoxic vasoconstriction where the vessels in the lungs constrict and then simple plumbing the pressure in the pulmonary artery, which feeds into the pulmonary vessels, goes up, and that too can generate, you know, pulmonary edema. Um, so that's the kind of more high-level pathophysiologic thing that's going on. So this neurohormonal recognition of, oh my God, I'm starting to wake up. My brain's starting to have this awareness of the hypoxia <coughs> hypercarbia, um, coupled with maybe inhaling against closed glottis, coupled with I'm waking up, I'm in fulminant withdrawal, and now I'm going to vomit. So there's so many different things at play that can cause pulmonary injury. So um, I, so the latter half like is something I, I understood the physiology, you know, the, uh, you know, the vasoconstriction of, you know, the pulmonary vasoconstriction. So the, the beginning part I didn't understand. So um, and if you could dive into a little bit of the, how the, cause what I don't understand is, so op the opiate, the opiate itself kind of reduces, you know, brain activity, right? So as it's waking up, quote unquote, um, how does that, what's actually happening at like the receptor level, which is causing that 
you know, what what does the opiate do that the naloxone is reversing that allows for that gradual or not so gradual awakening, if that makes sense? I mean, when you give naloxone, you are pushing opioid off of your mu receptors mm-hmm. in your CNS. Which is um, a type of opiate receptor. Correct. To my knowledge, uh, there's no direct effect of the naloxone on the pulmonary vasculature or any of the receptors in your pulmonary vasculature. What you do go, what you do get though, is as you administer the Narcan, you do get this catecholamine surge as you start to gain awareness. Those catecholamines will flood the pulmonary vasculature, cause pulmonary vasoconstriction, increase in pulmonary artery pressures, and just the the mere inflammatory response that's associated with that catecholamine surge will cause structural leakiness at the alveolar level and pulmonary edema formation. So just another kind of parallel, um, a lot of patients that we see with SIRS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which can be seen in the setting of sepsis, trauma, um, they will often get all these inflammatory mediators secreted in their body, things like interleukin, interferon, uh, and all these things can make the pulmonary vasculature at the alveolar level just leaky. Okay. And get pulmonary edema filling the alveoli. Okay. And the catecholamine release itself, is that essentially caused by the body going from this sedated state all of a sudden being jarred into quote unquote normalcy, which in somebody who's, you know, addicted to opiates, it's not going to be normal. That's going to be a distress state for them. And, and essentially you're just shocking them uh, out of their sedated state into a withdrawal state essentially is... Yeah, I, I don't know that we can diagram or detail the mechanism. I, I don't know that it's completely understood. But, okay. you know, as cited in this paper, you know, catecholamine surges may be amplified by sudden autonomic recognition of elevated carbon dioxide levels, uh, which then induce pulmonary arterial hypertension and increased capillary permeability. Okay. I mean, they state it so eloquently. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a scientist at, at Hopkins or somewhere that could draw us a diagram of, yeah, yeah. you know, with some complex stuff that yeah, that, we're probably that not may not affect our practice of pre-hospital yeah. medicine yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's all good yeah. so what i got from this paper um number one is and this is something that's pushed where i've worked before you know in, a, in another agency um establish an airway <laughs> right i mean it's pretty self-explanatory like and i mean I know maybe none of you guys have seen it but i've definitely seen it where people just love to show up give two four milligrams of Narcan mm-hmm. and do no airways. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I think, so you're absolutely right, but I think we have to sort out. There's actually a couple groups of people responding to these emergencies. Yes. yes. So we know that giving naloxone to our law enforcement first responders is a great thing. Teaching them how to use tourniquets is a great thing. Kind of, you know, increasingly empowering our real first responders, which are often law enforcement. They'll, they'll get their quickest usually. Um, to do some of these things is, is wonderful, saves lives. Um, but they're not going to probably break out a, a nasopharyngeal airway and a BVM and, and provide positive pressure ventilation as they're doing these things. Because, you know, oftentimes they're alone and, mm-hmm. you know, their priority is to pull out the mucosal atomization device and squirt it up the nose mm-hmm. and, and, and wait th- for you and to like get there. And, like, scene safety, stuff right, like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. worry about who's trying to kill them. And Police stuff, on scene. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, this paper, again, there's so many great little pearls in this paper. And, and, and one of the things that we've seen in our local EMS system is echoed in this paper. And, and I'm just going to read you 
uh, what, what they write, they write, uh, we, we suspect an association between repeated naloxone administration and pulmonary complications may have also resulted in part from delays in the management of a patient's compromised airway and ventilation in favor of giving antidotal therapy. So you hit the nail on the head is there's a whole lot more to this than just squirting Narcan up somebody's nose. And maybe actually if you can get an IV, you should give it IV after mm-hmm. reading this paper yep. because the rate of pulmonary complications was st- statistically significantly higher in the IN group. Um, although that is probably still the safest way to give this drug uh, for infectious control reasons, for not having a you know an IV out and uh, just timing to deliver the dose. Um, but too often providers don't start supporting a patient's oxygenation and ventilation concurrent to delivering the antidote. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, in, in my system, uh, talk about this frequently with our providers that if you are giving naloxone, if a patient has that degree of respiratory depression, I should probably be reading in your report that you had a BVM out, that you had a NPA out, uh, that you were supporting their ventilatory mm-hmm. effort concurrent to delivering the antidote. And uh, one of the things that this, page, this paper kind of also references in some of the other associated papers that I pulled out was that um, actually doing that period of positive pressure ventilation may actually limit the incidence of some of these pulmonary complications that we're seeing here. So one of the things that this paper doesn't explore is the incidence of pulmonary complications when BVM ventilation was provided versus when it was not during the initial treatment phase. That, that I think, is an interesting question. And I, I would speculate that if we can avoid that obstructed airway, that kind of snoring against a closed fixed glottis uh, and giving positive pressure concurrent to delivering the antidote, we will probably see a reduction in pulmonary complications. Speculation. And by extension with that, even for our law enforcement first responders or our uh, bystanders who are administering naloxone, maybe even teaching them something as simple as a head tilt chin lift could help to reduce that uh, incidence of complication just by opening that airway and, and having everything in good inline position. You know, one of the un- other very interesting things in this paper is, is if you look at table one, um, table one uh, outlines, you know, there were 1,831 patients. They talk about the demographics. The mean age was about 40 for all these patients. Um, uh, preponderance of men, 65, 70% men. Um, ethnicity, um, I guess in Pittsburgh, um, a little different than where we practice in Baltimore. Uh, uh, many more Caucasian patients than African-American patients. Um, and then if you look at the number of patients on table one with pulmonary complications, and this is composite pulmonary complications, so pulmonary edema, uh, aspiration pneumonia, pneumonitis, which is just mere inflammation of the lung, uh, there were 485 patients of those 1,831 that had pulmonary complications and only 24 that they categorized as having pulmonary edema through retrospective uh, chart review, looking at x-rays, looking at the medical record. I was actually kind of surprised by that because that's actually not my clinical experience. I, I do see a ton of opioid overdose. I see many, many patients that have vomited and I have a high degree that they've had a aspiration event, mm-hmm. um, but I also have probably an equal number where with simply supportive care, non-invasive ventilation, maybe a little bit of diuresis, 
uh, get better. And, and my suspicion is that they just had non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So one of the things that I was surprised about when I read this article was the actual low number of patients that they categorized as having pulmonary edema. But they also talk about in the limitations sections and actually at the outset of the article, uh, the difficulty sometimes in differentiating between pulmonary edema, aspiration pneumonia, aspiration pneumonitis. Uh, when you get to ARDS, that's a, there's a pretty standard definition of that syndrome. Uh, but ARDS can emerge from any of those entities that I just described. So I think that's really interesting that you bring that up, Doc, because, and, and this is completely non-scientific, but my clinical experience, where, where I work, I see a lot of opiate overdoses. Um, I can only think of one definite situation where I was like, this is pulmonary edema post naloxone administration, which sounds like you have a very different experience than I do. But we're, I we're all biased by where we work. So we are. Yeah, so and and I, I'm sorry. No, I, was, I, I, was just gonna, I wonder, too, if is this a flash pulmonary edema that we're talking about where we see it right away? Or is this something that's developing over you know, an hour or two where if that's the case, of course, I'm not seeing it in the field, you know, um, but no wonder you're seeing it in the ED. So seeing it in the ED and the ICU, I split my time between both. Um, you know, again, right in this article, they talk about the immediate causes of pulmonary edema in both the opioid intoxicated phase with inspiring against mm -hmm. a closed glottis, forcefully sucking in and kind of shearing your alveoli that way. And then they talk about that catecholamine surge. Um, causing capillary leak and pulmonary edema. So uh, my experience, and this is just my experience in, in, in and around Baltimore, is that a lot of these patients that have pulmonary complications, uh, it's evident as they're woken up mm -hmm. in the field, and it becomes even more evident as they arrive to the emergency department. Um, and so I, I don't really see a delayed onset mm -hmm. uh, of these, of these uh, patients having pulmonary complication. Usually it's pretty quickly apparent. It's that patient who has a SATA 88% on room air and like, dude, you have got to go, mm -hmm. which is maybe another reason why you shouldn't have given them two milligrams of naloxone and maybe titrated it. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we can actually chat a little bit about that because, you know, I think that um, table two of this paper is really where the, the meat and potatoes is. And it talks about um, the odds ratios for um, having pulmonary complications. And so an odds ratio uh, is defined as a, um, uh, it allows a comparison between an intervention group of a study relative to a comparison. Um, so, so basically, you know, if we look at table two of this paper, um, it, it tells us that people that received a total naloxone dose of greater than 4.4 milligrams had an odds ratio of 2.14 of having pulmonary complications. So, so, when an odds ratio is one, that means there's really no difference in risk between the control group and the treatment group. In this, in this study, the, the control group is, you know, um, uh, getting less than 4.4 milligrams of, of naloxone in this particular line of table two. The treatment group is great at getting greater than 4.4 milligrams. So you have an increase odds of developing pulmonary complications and significantly so when you get a relatively high dose of naloxone here defined about 4.4 milligrams. Um, one of the things that I was taught really, really early uh, about by actually some of my anesthesia colleagues is they will, and, and I've seen some EMS systems do this, they'll take the 0.4 milligram unit dose of naloxone, which I don't know that a lot of us carry anymore. I think most of us are carrying the bristol jet screw yep. together, two milligram per yep. two ml or one milligram per ml. Um, uh, syringe 
quickly screwed together, lower lock adapter on the top, easily attached mucosal atomization device, one ML up each nostril, right? So that's most systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I recall being in systems carrying the 0. 0.4 uh, milligram dose. So if you the actually- vial. The vial. Yeah. Okay. When so I, I just as an aside, when I started working where I work now, we actually carried multi-dose vials. And that's right. what mm-hmm. we were carrying. Right. Yeah. So, so if you drop the 0. 0.4 from either a multi-dose vial or a single 0. 0.4 vial, and then you dilute it in 10 cc's, you have basically every cc in that 10 cc syringe has 0. 0.04 milligrams of naloxone or 40 micrograms. And if, if you kind of go through some of these references that I sent you, a lot of them advocate slow, deliberate titration of naloxone in 40 microgram increments. Mm. And that's actually my practice in the hospital so that I don't get to the point where people are having fulminant withdrawal aspirating because usually when they're in the hospital, they've already been selected for, they're already sicker. I don't want them to wake up. I don't want, I want, I want them to wake up to get a respiratory drive, mm-hmm. but I don't need them to have full awareness. I need them to protect their airway mm-hmm. and not vomit. Um, so, so there are some, some of these papers from the EMS literature that advocate for administration of naloxone in 40 microgram increments. Now that is supported by this paper, because again, if you look at table two, there was an increased risk of pulmonary complications and significantly so when your initial naloxone dose was above 0.4 milligrams and there was uh, an increased risk when your cumulative dose was above 4.4 um, and the route of administration the risk was highest with an intranasal route of administration um, and followed by IM, and then there was really no risk uh, with IV or IO administration. I wonder if, um, you know, generally the IN, IM route is a higher dose. Uh, Ken and I were talking about this before, um, and how much that plays into it versus if they are giving an IV, I wonder how many other providers are actually trying to at least attempt to give. Because I know in my practice, if I am generally, and this was beat into me when I, you know, first became a paramedic, um, get the airway first, start the IV, because at that point you're fixing their problem, right? If you have their airway, if you have a good provider that's giving them, you know, you're, you're they're, hopefully you're getting a good SAT, good compliance, you're f- temporarily fixing their problem while you can titrate them back to a good respiratory rate. Um, I wonder how much that had to do with it. And I, I think there's two things there. Number one, people do need to realize when you deal with an opiate overdose, if you're ventilating the patient and their O2 SAT is appropriate, their entitles appropriate, you're breathing for them, the emergency's temporarily been mitigated. Like we're in no rush here. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the other thing is I, I do think you hit the nail on the head there because when we see people give intranasal or intramuscular naloxone, usually it is a two milligrams. If they get a line, they might try and give, you know, uh, you know, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.8, you know, whatever it is, and then let it circulate, let the patient start breathing a little bit and stop. And I, I get it. Maybe the, the intranasal thing is kind of drilled into people's head around here, at least, you know, I'm going to give two, I'm going to give the 4.4, whatever it is. Um, but the intramuscular, I do understand because if I'm going to take a needle, put it inside somebody with a history of IVDA who may have who knows what, I'm probably not going to take that needle out, hold on to it for a couple minutes, wait to see if they start breathing and stick them again, you know, um, not that that's really good infection control practice anyway, I but, hope not. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I, I mean, you, you get what I'm saying. No, I probably I, yeah, don't yeah. want to be sticking, sticking somebody with multiple needles multiple yes. times. Yeah. So, so let's just get academic here for a second there. Um, I pulled up some other studies, some studies of intranasal versus IV naloxone. So one retrospective study of 96 patients with opioid overdose, 
found a greater need for supplemental naloxone with two milligram IN compared to the 0.4 to two milligram IV dose. So 42% uh, of patients getting the IN dose required additional doses versus 20% that got IV doses despite similar respiratory rates and GCS measures. And so the conclusion of, of that particular paper is that IN patients typically need additional doses. Now the question is, are people not waiting long enough for the IN to exert its effect um, and not supporting a patient with you know, basic airway management and, and giving a second dose too quickly? But regardless, uh, this is a, a study of 96 patients that showed patients that get IN typically get supplemental dosage much more frequently double the amount, 42 versus 20% compared to IV. Another study, a randomized study of 100 patients that received either 0.4 of uh, IN or IV found a longer mean response time in the intranasal group, 2.6 minutes versus 1.5 minutes, not surprising. Uh, nasal route has about 50% bioavailability, IV is 100%. Um, so the IN dose takes longer to exert its effect than IV. Um, and, and this paper said in its conclusion remarks, thus the importance of a nasopharyngeal airway and BVM ventilation, which we've stated a couple times here, which is just good practice mm -hmm. and, and may actually help negate some of these unwanted pulmonary complications. So um, this begs the question, if I get on scene and I actually have somebody doing good basic airway management, uh, achieving chest rise and fall and generating a decent SAT, mm -hmm. and I have somebody that can actually pop in an IV, and I'm not going to be sitting there and fishing all day long and somebody with, you know, track marks or whatever. Should I maybe get that IV and do a slow titration of, you know, low dose IV naloxone to the point where I get a respiratory drive back and I'm not waking them up and causing them to vomit. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe again, even move them to the ambulance if you can yeah. You yeah. preserve that. But, but again, we have to think yeah. about who's, who's yeah. giving the meds these days. Yeah. I mean, we're giving out, you know, naloxone, IA naloxone yeah, to yeah. almost uh, the practice where I, the ER I work in is, uh, we have a discharge pathway by which we give IN naloxone to almost everybody that gets an opioid prescription. Mm -hmm. We have our police officers carrying IN. We have all our BLS uh, first responders carrying IN. So patients are going to get IN naloxone, mm -hmm. and then we're going to come up behind them, and we may or may not not give additional dosages. Yeah. So I want to finish up with two points. Uh, number one. Um, how much, uh, I think there's this, I, I believe it to be a false misconception that if you have different agents like fentanyl versus carfentanil, you end up needing more Narcan. I believe that's false, but doc, if I'm wrong, uh, I have a feeling I'm not, if we can talk about that. And then lastly, I want to finish up with what pearls we can give, right. Uh, and to wrap this up and you know, especially from your position, doc, um, what pearls we can give to our, you know, everyday street clinicians, uh, that they can take away from this paper. Sure. So let's talk about the um, transition in what we're seeing from heroin to fentanyl to, I guess, rarely carfentanil, remifentanil, those really super potent uh, opioids. So there was a study in the European Journal of Pharmacology in 2003. It was a naloxone displacement study that showed 13 micrograms per kilogram of naloxone will bump off a labeled opioid and occupy 50% of brain mu receptors. This corresponded to a dose of about 1.04 milligrams in an 80 kilo man. Um, so uh, you can reverse um, a opioid intoxication uh, with, with a very low dose of naloxone. Now, 
one of the other parts of this paper is they talked about uh, the difference difference between uh, drug potency and affinity for the mu pain receptor. So just because a drug is more potent, so if we kind of go in order of potency, you know, morphine, fentanyl, carfentanyl, just because something is more potent, so fentanyl being 100 times more potent than morphine or heroin, uh, doesn't mean that that more potent drug has a higher affinity for the mu, mu receptor, which we're trying to use naloxone to knock the drug off of. And in fact, um, fentanyl has a lower affinity for the mu receptors than uh, morphine and for most street versions of heroin. So the idea that we have to use gallons of naloxone to knock fentanyl off of mu receptors is not is not valid. And I want to I want to just talk about that concept real quick. So what potency means versus affinity to a receptor, right? So potency means how much of an effect it's going to have, how much the, uh, the drug is going to have once it attaches to the receptor. And affinity is how tight that handshake is between agent and receptor. Is that correct? Absolutely. Could yeah. have said it better. Yeah. Just so that we can, you know, yeah. So, so, so some of the, the fentanyl that we're seeing, the fentanyl that we're seeing uh, may have actually a lower affinity for the mu receptors, but have a more potent respiratory depressing hypotensive clinical effect um, than, than heroin. One of the other things to remember too is that after you start giving naloxone, there are many other reasons why a patient may remain unconscious. And Ken, you started talking about this at the beginning of the podcast where you said, hey, did they do tox screens or discuss um, you know, patients with polysubstance abuse? So you know, what they suspected in this paper and, and they talked about it is that probably people that were being given repeated dosages were under the effects of other things, probably alcohol the majority of the time, which Narcan isn't going to do a whole lot for. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are many other reasons why patients may have persistent CNS depression. Number one, severe hypercarbia. How long have they been either hypoventilating or apneic? And what is their PCO2 on their blood gas? Uh, you know, once your PCO2 gets much above 60, 70, uh, you start getting this hypercarbic encephalopathy and that, uh, you know, you may start reversing that with BVM ventilation, but if you just gave naloxone and the patient started breathing on their own, they still may have a very high And PCO2, PCO2 means partial, partial pressure, pressure of carbon, carbon dioxide, dioxide in your bloodstream. Blood. Yeah. Remember carbon dioxide is cleared by ventilation, um, chest rise and fall. Um, the other thing is uh, to remember that some of these patients have other things going on like hypothermia and believe it or not. Um, and they talk about it in this paper. Uh, there were um, a number of patients that uh, were given naloxone um, that uh, had pulmonary edema, and they talk about how a subset of those patients wound up having strokes, intracranial hemorrhages, uh, hypoglycemia. So um, thus the importance of not having blinders on. And if you're starting to titrate naloxone and providing good basic airway management, and the patient is not developing a native respiratory effort, to start expanding your differential and saying, shit, they're 50. Mm-hmm. They're hypertensive. They've had an MI. Maybe they've had a stroke. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so don't, don't get you know, one-tracked into thinking that you know, they've had an opioid overdose before. That's what it is now. Sure, uh, it may be. But, but keep your differential open and think about hypercarbia, hypothermia, stroke, hemorrhagic and non-hemorrhagic, um, other metabolic disorders, infection. 
yeah so i think that was probably a great uh segue into pearls for this episode doc um so i'm gonna guess that one of them is establish an airway ventilate (laughs) yeah yeah uh at least from what I'm getting, right? So the, the, how important it is to, number one, establish that airway, right? Anytime you suspect or, you know, have a... You know, no, number one, it comes down to our ABCs, right? If a patient doesn't have an airway, give them an airway. Do you, do you think that... Let's just... I want to get practical for yeah, a minute. Yeah, yeah. Do you think a lot of providers say it's a waste to get out a, a, an NPA and a BVM because I'm yes. going to wake them up? 110%. Yes. Now, do you, th- do you think that our providers say it's a waste because they're thinking about... Um, financially saving our system and, and conserving, you know, money and, and no. or, or do you think they're saying, oh, they're going to be up in a minute anyway. I, why am I opening up this yes. BVM? And yep. yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah, 100% think it's laziness. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so, I, I don't want to sound like, I don't know, negative. Yeah. Know. So, so the problem is, you know, you don't know when they're going to wake up. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and especially if they're getting, you know, I, I dosing, which again, according to this paper and, and yeah. historically can take a little longer mm-hmm. and, and repeated dosage, um, the not knowing you, you have to walk into, so I'd say one of the pearls is you have to walk into all these situations, um, anticipating the worst yeah. and that you may actually be supporting the patient's ventilatory effort for a sustained period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that's the importance of opening up a BVM. Uh, inserting a, a basic airway adjunct, preferably a nasopharyngeal airway, because these patients may wake up and mm-hmm. probably don't want an OPA in, causing them to vomit and gag even more than they're at risk for vomiting yeah. and gagging. Yeah, I mean, second part I would say is uh, definitely um, consider IV dosing after you've established a you know a pain good airway, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of like what we talked about earlier, consider the dilution if you don't have and. We are not advocating for anything. Follow your local jurisdictional protocols. This is not medical advice, but we're just talking about, you know, what could be the best out, you know, potentially a better outcome. Dilute your naloxone to the uh, concentration that you were discussing, you know, depending on what you guys have and give it a slower administration. Yeah. So you have to, you have to follow your protocols. So let's just always put the asterisks on this podcast that you, you have to follow medical direction in whatever system or jurisdiction you work you have to follow your state or local protocols. Um, one of the things to talk about with your medical director or whoever uh, writes your protocols is um, doing it better. And to me, both in the pre-hospital and hospital realm, doing it better is a focus on slow titration of fentanyl and resisting the urge, particularly when there's an IV, to slamming in two milligrams or four milligrams. That just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and this paper supports the notion i mean again if you look at the table that talks about pulmonary complications if you simply got greater than a 0.4 milligram initial dose the odds ratio of you having pulmonary complications was 2.57 significant Mm -hmm. so 27 percent of patients versus 13 percent that had initial dose of narcan greater than 0.4 had pulmonary complications Um, so, so like everything else in medicine Sometimes it's better to start low and go slow because mm-hmm. you're not sucking the Narcan back out of their vein once you give it to yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening, guys. Uh, Ken has something. He wants to say something. Oh, no. I was just going to say, I think that really sums it up well. Yeah. Ventilate, oxygenate, titrate, you know, get it to titrated to respiratory effort. You know, I'm sure that's what most people's protocols say. That's really the, uh, the goal whenever we talk about administering naloxone and good medicine. So, yeah. I think we can wrap just it up. just want to thank you for 
working overnight and then recording with us. Uh, that's awesome, Doc. Thanks. Soft, uh, soft voice is going to yeah, fall asleep in a few minutes. Now, I, know. I want you to remember it when you go home. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, uh, listen, thank you very much for listening in, guys. Uh, please be sure to visit our website, alertmedic1.com. Uh, listen to our podcast. Give us a rating on whichever uh, podcast software you use. Uh, check out our blog articles. Um, as always, please let us know how we're doing. Give us feedback. Uh, if you have any ideas, please uh, shoot it shoot it to our email. Uh, Ken, you got anything? I have nothing. Cool. Thank you very much. That's all for now. Thank you. Take care. All right. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. 